1: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Warndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the Politics Guys. It is always great to be back. Ken I just have to ask you know this this week is weird in the sense of the of the presidency I mean have you ever gone missing from your job
0: <laughs> well, as a professor, I get to go missing for, for my job for the, the the three or four day interval that uh, uh, Secretary Austin didn't show up. Uh, I, I, I frequently might not show up for a three or four day interval.
1: <laughs> Leave it to you privileged law professors, yeah, um, yeah. unlike us undergraduates, where if we miss for more than 30 seconds, there's a line yeah. <laughs> of undergraduates. I will for always be upset with Indiana Jones for being able to ditch out of his window um, and just not grade for a, a year. Uh. <laughs> so, you know, I thought the first thing we would start with this week, uh, Ken, is, is the unusual circumstances. And, and I think probably not just that, but an honest question about come kind of the, the, the White House and presidential drama uh, when it became apparent that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was hospitalized. Now, for what we now know, it was actually a complication related to the treatment of his prostate cancer. But he didn't tell that to either senior administration officials or even his own deputy. So here's the timeline for listeners, because this was a little bit confusing as the week went on. Uh, on January 1, Lloyd Austin was rushed to Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center in Virginia by ambulance. And the official reason from the uh, press secretary, which is Pat Reiner, was complications from a minor elective procedure uh, earlier in December, on December 22nd. But that was, in fact, a lie. Doctors from Walter Reed, Reed then later, after a lot of explaining, uh, said that he had been diagnosed with prostate cancer and had underwent a successful surgery on December 22nd. 22nd. After that, he had returned home and had a urinary tract infection and then serious intestinal complications as a result. And so he was then, as I mentioned before, rushed back to the hospital. But then this again was only after repeated questioning. What we also now know is that after being admitted on Jan 1, on January 2nd, he had to be uh, transferred to the intensive care unit where because he had fluid collection going on. So This, though, then came with assurances that he had, quote, never lost consciousness and never underwent general anesthesia, end quote. And that's important because there are rules about this. Now, this is a far cry from the Pentagon's, and I said it a second ago, I'll say it again, lie that it's a, quote, minor elective procedure. Making it even harder, uh, and this is what makes it complicated for President Biden, is, is that the White House didn't learn about his condition until three days after he was hospitalized. And Joe Biden was only made aware of the prostate cancer diagnosis this past According to NSC spokesperson John Kirby. Now, meanwhile, while he was under for the procedure on December 22nd, his authority was given to his deputy defense secretary, Kathleen Hicks, who was also not informed what was happening and was therefore on vacation in Puerto Rico. Now, what even gets crazier is that despite the fact he is in the ICU, Ryder is now saying that, quote, he is in contact with his senior staff and has full access to require secure communication capabilities, end quote, and goes on to say that he continues to, quote, make important decisions about national security and defense, end quote. So, What about this process and what about writer's lie? Well, in his own defense, he says, quote, it was deeply personal. And so, again, you know, we'll continue to work hard to make sure we are being as transparent as possible moving forward. And again, wish the secretary a speedy recovery, end quote. So ABC News senior White House correspondents asked if this signaled a lack of trust between the White House and the Pentagon. And the White House has continued to deny that, uh, just saying that there hasn't been a loss of trust. As a matter of fact, she went on to say, quote, we have complete confidence in the secretary. That is something we have said. The president has complete confidence in the secretary, end quote. Now, of course, the Congress has had a response to this as well, although it's been surprisingly a little bit more partisan than I would have imagined with Republicans seeing this as much a big breakdown and dec- Democrats saying, look, it's a private matter and we need to back away. So can this does, I think, leave some questions. And I understand that uh, uh, Biden doesn't want at this moment to make things, but I can't imagine if I was President Biden, uh, I think angry might be an underscore, especially given the time of the year of what's going on. <laughs> uh what was kind of your takeaway cuz again i see this as being one of those Neustadian moments where uh, you know the president is getting a little bit undermined by his own staff
0: well i i don't um i uh, yeah, i guess i'll i'll uh, fulfill your expectation by giving what you described as the partisan response so oh. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah so I, I don't think it's it's uh, i i I do. We don't know what's uh, being said between President Biden and uh, Secretary Austin, you know, non-publicly. And it may well be that President Biden was pretty angered and alarmed about this, but just decided not to air that publicly. Um, And I think it is it's a, a certainty that it's not going to happen again. I don't think there's any risk whatsoever that if Secretary Austin or any other cabinet secretary uh, goes back in for another um, non-elective emergency medical procedure where they 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 won't be physically capable of, of doing their job duties, that they're they're going to fail to notify the president. And I think this, you know, the Explosion of this out into the media pretty much is a a completely effective prophylactic against that happening in the future. So the way I look at it, given given that, is that um, the Republicans in Congress have been trying to shove uh, Secretary Austin out um, since long before this episode. And so this is just really playing into, um, you know, it's just one more uh, tool that they've seized on. That they want to use to try to deny uh, President Biden uh, his own uh, choice of cabinet secretaries. And uh, I admire him quite a bit for just minimizing it publicly and making it absolutely clear he's he's standing by Secretary Austin and he'll pay no attention to a, a firestorm from a, a partisan Congress that's just kind of looking to claim some scalps.
1: Now, I, I, I get, you know, I even said I understand uh, Biden's standing by uh, Austin. However, I think the problem is in this particular instance, right? So the way you kind of play that out is I think that is the earlier narrative on Austin. But I think in this case, when the average person reads the story, who's going to a job and having things going on, I think they see themselves getting fired under similar circumstances. And so as a result, I don't think it plays the same way. And and, and I honestly think that it, it is kind of a black eye for him in the sense of, yes i mean even if you're working at mcdonald's you're going to let your you're going to let your uh, supervisor know when you're taking your your uh, elective time off that's one thing otherwise the assumption is you're on and in a more highly uh, environment like this like so for example if i and i have right i mean i i've had uh, 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 immediate procedures known about procedures you know people have to come in and, and step in for you uh, so you need to let them know if you know to the extent and what they're doing and so him not letting Hicks know what was going on. I mean, I think the average professional person looks at that and goes, wow, I couldn't get away with that. This this that's kind of terrible. And again, you I mean your title isn't, oh, professor or the guy who works at McDonald's, you're the deputy defense secretary. So I don't disagree with you that Republicans are capitalizing on this fair. However, I think unlike earlier times, I think there is in fact a grain of problematic nature here to which it will benefit Republicans in a
0: real way. So, yeah, so you you've talked, I think, both substantively and then politically, so I'll, I'll try to address both. Um, yeah, substantively, you know, it, it was uh, not good, right? I mean, the, the, you know, in fact, you compared it to other jobs, but I'd probably even go a step farther than, than you did and say, you know, in this particular job, um, it's probably more important than in most other jobs that, um, that, that, that there be somebody able to perform that role. Because uh, under the um, controlling statutes, I think the main one is called the Goldwater Act of 1986, the the military chain of command has to go from the president through the secretary of defense and then down to the um, uh, combatant commanders. So even though I think um, Austin did uh, notify the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, the the military chain of command can't run from the president to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It has to run through a civil uh, official. So I do think it it was substantively uh, problematic. I don't argue with that. But, but I think, um, if you, if you look about, um, you know, so what's to be done about it? Um, well, it doesn't, uh, firing Austin and putting somebody else in there, I think would have zero impact on, on how likely or unlikely this would be to happen again in the future. Because And I, I, I
1: want, I want to be clear. I was not suggesting that that is the direction to go. So continue. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. I, I was not arguing for his ouster.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Because I think even you know even if um, you know he were fired and someone else was put in, and that person would certainly or do this. I think it's also true that Austin will never again do this. That he, he, he got the message here that he he should have he should have um, designated uh, he not only designated uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks, which actually he did do, but also um, told her that, which is what he didn't do. Right. So he he did actually uh, turn his powers over to her um, on January second. It's just that she didn't find that out until January fourth. Right. Um, so she didn't know that he'd done that. Uh, and it would you know? So that yeah, he didn't do he didn't do what he should have done, and it did cause potential serious problem with the chain of command but but I I still think that um you know president biden i'm sure expressed his disappointment uh in in, in to, to secretary austin uh privately but i think he's really right to just basically ignore all the noise because um if he's if he's not going to fire him which i think he shouldn't do then I, I don't know what else he should be doing publicly no i mean, i think really
1: the only other thing he could have done and i probably not but i would say through as he's been doing at this juncture through his spokesperson is just to say, you know, hey, this is, we recognize this was a lapse. I think that's really the only thing that's missing here is that portion of it just to say, yes, a problem occurred, but not a problem to the level that we need to replace this individual and put that in context. I I think that was really the only missing piece to what has been the White House's response.
0: Yeah, well, I, I would I would agree with that if we had a different Congress, um, but I think that uh, certainly the White House should not have told lies, and Secretary Austin should not have told lies. So I'll totally agree with you there. But in terms of whether well, they should be clear, have, the White yeah, House yeah, wasn't, but you had the yeah, Pentagon. it was, the it was the Austin, Pentagon. a yeah, 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 yeah. no, no, person. Nobody should have told any lies about this. But in terms of whether there should be an apology, um, I, I think that would be the right way to go if you had a Congress that was in in good faith uh, to apologize to But I, I think this this. This House of Representatives is in such bad faith here that I think it just doesn't benefit the country for the for the president to even acknowledge it when they when they yell and scream about things because they're they're usually not right and you know and that won't stop them from from yelling and screaming about everything and I think an apology would would tend to um, vindicate uh, the, if if they could get apologies one tenth of the time they yell and scream about nothing it's just going to encourage them to to do that even more so I, I think because of that and only only because of that, um, I don't agree that an apology would be warranted.
1: This leads us then to maybe kind of the footnote on the story, Ken, and that is, of course, that yesterday, uh, as a result of that uh, uh, set of potential substantive issues, uh, Inspector General Robert Storch has said that there is going to be an investigation into this and in a report um, through uh, to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and although that scope could be broadened. So given that there is going to be this internal side, what do you think about that? I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround on that front. Of course, we don't know exactly what that's gonna look like. I mean, this is day one of it being announced.
0: Yeah, I think that is appropriate. I think the inspector general should investigate. I, I did, you know, I did say substantively. I think this seems like there were failures to comply with uh, procedure. Uh, there were lies that were told, and 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 th- there was a potential threat to the chain of command. So I, I absolutely think the inspector general should investigate. I, I think the ex- inspector general is going to do a, a fair and balanced uh, investigation and publish uh, a report that I would probably, you know, be inclined, having not seen it yet, to 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 give. Uh, you know, to to credit, um, uh, but I think that's totally different than um, the, the the House of Representatives. I hear that. So again, I think we can probably
1: leave that behind and move to really a constellation of stories. there's there, we keep seeming to get the weeks where we have a lot of things happening on Israel. and this week is no, and so I'm going to try to kind of put together a, a number of things that are that are part of a constellation of issues. so, This past week, facing accusations of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, Israel is preparing to defend itself at the United Nations top court, that's the ICJ, in a high-profile legal battle uh, that is coming in the aftermath, of course, of the terrorist attacks from Hamas. Now, the charge or the, uh, the, those who are presenting it, the ICJ is a little bit different than your, your traditional court in some ways, is led by South Africa. that has long been a staunch critic of Israel and has filed this case to be heard. And it's actually occurring, the starting of it, right as we are recording this show on Friday. The South African uh, uh, memo—that's uh, kind of the legal filing in this, or the, or, or the application—is what it's actually called for the ICJ. It's an 84-page filing, uh, and really, what it's going through is what they—they argue—is the killing, injuring, and purposeful displacing of Palestinian civilians. In their argument, since October 7th, now that's also. Worth thinking about because recall, October seven was the day of the attack. It goes on to argue that denying them food, water, and other essentials is quote intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnic group end quote. Now, for members who not, might not know, the ICJ or the International Court of Justice is composed of fifteen judges, and its rulings are binding to countries under their jurisdiction. In other words. They create international law. Now, it is also important to note that the United States has pulled out of the treaties that comprise the ICJ, meaning that we do not recognize the ICJ or its decisions, although there is still a bit of what you might think of as a constructivist narrative battle for its decisions when it comes to the United States. Israeli governmental spokesperson Elon Levy said last week that South Africa was, quote, criminally complicit. And had openly aligned itself with the Hamas rapist regime, end quote. He also dismissed the filings as, quote, uh, a, uh, uh, excuse me, as a nothing more than an atrocious and preposterous that it would be accused of genocide. Now. Something that is also interesting as a result of the United States not being part of the ICJ, also this week, dozens of legal and civil uh, uh, organizations from around the world have brought their weight in amicus curiae briefs behind a lawsuit, Palestinian Americans accusing President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, along with Lloyd Austin of failing to quote prevent an unfolding genocide in Gaza. In late December 77 groups, including lots of individuals added on to that, and what that Palestinian human rights organization and residents of Gaza are arguing is that Biden has had opportunities to stop Israel's ongoing assault and has not. And this is breaking, quote, long and widely held norms of international law, including the Geneva Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the wake of World War II. Uh, Now, of course, that is happening in federal district court. So we've we've got both of these going on. And at the same time, of course, this past week was Blinken's Israel trip uh, to try to get to a sense of what the end game of the violence is. So that is a lot. (laughs) I I have put a lot on your plate. So start where you will, but maybe start, if you can, maybe start with your thoughts on the ICJ's court. uh, uh, Maybe we start there.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I I don't know enough about uh, internal procedure at the ICJ to know um, how— once uh, South Africa filed this complaint, um, for, for the for the process to move forward. So I, I really don't actually know whether the process is moving forward just simply because they filed the complaint, um, or whether there was you know some kind of vetting um, before the process could move forward. But well, that's uh, actually a good it, it point. I, seem- I can
1: actually kind of outline yeah. quickly for listeners oh. the the ICJ process. Uh, so you, know, you have applicants and respondents in the ICJ process, and to be an applicant, you actually have to. It's not exactly the best kind of analogy uh, for American listeners is we don't have kind of the rule of four or that um, the um, uh, writ of certiary kind of, but there is kind of a stage like that to allow a state uh, to get a hearing before the ICJ. Um, And so what's happening is the first oral portion of that, which will then lead to a written response, uh, which will come months later from Israel.
0: So if I understand what you just said correctly, correct me if I didn't get it right. Um, the mere fact that South Africa filed this complaint is what triggered the the present proceeding. It triggers it. But then to get it to Thursday, you have to have
1: not all, but some of those justices saying, yes, it can move forward.
0: And, and that hasn't happened yet. That did. That's why we had. Uh, oh, th- that's oh, that why, that's why today okay. you have what's happening. Okay, so some, so some justices um, did decide to let it move yeah. forward. But again, like I was yeah. saying, you got
1: to be careful. It's, it's similar in the sense to that, like the writ of cert phase for the Supreme Court in that that doesn't mean you know how anybody's going to rule, but you've had enough justices say, yes, we'll take it effectively.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really uh, disappointing because it, it is... Um I think obvious that that you know no matter no, you, if you take uh, even the most damning reports against Israel that have been reported in the news to be to be true, um, it can't possibly fit the genocide convention definition of of, of genocide. And so i'm I'm not really sure you know, why any of, of the justices at the ICJ w- would vote to allow a complaint like that to go forward. Um, and it does, um, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I in the past would have thought that the US actually should join the ICJ, which the US has never done. Um, and, and you know, every every US government um, has always said, we don't wanna join it, you know, because it's it's not really a legitimate um, uh, legal tribunal. It's 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 just political. And I didn't really believe that before, but this, this seems to be, you know, <laughs> Some some evidence that seems to me to vindicate that, and I would like to just explain that a little bit why I think that's so obvious. Uh, because the the um, genocide convention uh, it it um, lists um, kind of four kinds of things that could be genocide, and then and then lists some things that aren't aren't genocide. And and um, f- for something to be genocide, it has to be um, that a nation has taken an, an act um, uh, committed with an intent to destroy in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, um, uh, and and then there's various methods listed for how that can be done. Um, but I guess, um, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know even what the people of Gaza, I don't know how they could fit any of those those categories. You know, the people of Gaza are not a religious group. They may be Muslim, but there's lots of Muslims who aren't in Gaza that that the present conflict in Gaza is not affecting. Nobody would be saying that Israel's trying to um, to, to commit genocide against Muslims generally. Um, uh, the people in Gaza I don't think would qualify as a, a racial group. Um, uh, you know, I, I suppose they're Arabs, but there's lots of Arabs um, not in, in Gaza. Um, um, and I don't think anybody's saying that Israel's uh, trying to go after any of them. Uh, they're, they're, they're um, you know, an ethnic group. Again, I, I don't know how you really draw the line between racial or ethnic with respect to um, uh, Palestinian Arabs. Uh, maybe national would be just Palestinians. But, of course, not only are there also Palestinians in, in the West Bank, but in, in Israel proper, um, you know, in 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 the in the main part of Israel, not the occupied territory, 20% of the whole population is Palestinian, and and you know at, that's actually more Palestinians than there are in Gaza, and and the the uh, Palestinians who are in in Israel um, are are not uh, in any way uh, be, being targeted uh, because they're Palestinian. In fact, most of the Palestinians in in Israel um, seem to you know be broadly sympathetic to Israel's role in this war, um, at least uh, you know maybe not not as, as much as the Jewish people in Israel are, but they're not uh, supporting Hamas in any way. And uh, you know, so I, I think just looking at who the group is, um, there, there's nothing there. The people of Gaza couldn't rise to the level of a national and ethnic or racial or religious group. Um, and, and nobody, nobody is um, uh, arguing that Israel is actually trying to destroy uh, in whole or in part um uh, all Muslims or all Arabs um or all Palestinians. So I, I think right there it just kind of falls down.
1: So I, I think one of the key elements, and again I want to be clear, this is one where I think we have a lot of agreement, but as you read the documents, as you read the, the filing, I think a lot of it is on the displace the civilian overall displacement and two not allowing there to be food, water, et cetera, for non-combatants, and that seems to be a big portion of that. But, yeah. but, but, but again, that. As you outline, there is not genocide that could potentially be another uh, other types of war crimes, but
0: yeah. But, Let yeah. me say something about displacement because you know not not I, I mainly focused on the fact that there's n- nobody's got any bona fide way to argue that Israel is targeting any group that could count as a national group, an ethnic group, a racial group, or a religious group. But but also um, uh, displacement is actually specifically mentioned in the Genocide Convention as not being genocide. Right. right? It's specifically accepted, so so you know made an exception. I mean to say, so so the the idea that um you know that that movement of people um is, is possibly um you know being forced here, and you know there's some factual debate about that. I know there are some statements from some uh, minority ministers in the Israeli government that um, do suggest that at least their goal is to displace people. So I, I get that there's some basis for that, but displacement of people um, or movement, forced movement of people, um, is not genocide, except in one very limited circumstance, which I think nobody has alleged has happened, which is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So, you know, if if they were taking Palestinian children, and you know, bringing them to be raised as Jews in Israeli families—that would be the one kind of forced movement of people that could qualify within the definition of genocide um, under the um, Genocide Convention. But I, I don't think anyone um, has alleged that that's happened even once. So you know, just just moving people around—you know, within Palestine or within Gaza, or even if there is a plot to try to get some of them to leave Gaza—you um, know, that that would all be within a specific exception in the Genocide Convention that that can't. Can't be counted as genocide.
1: Well, I, I mean, I want to continue to talk about that too. But I also want to then bring us to the domestic case, which, I mean, I mean, again, I say, obviously, from the point of view of a presidential scholar, and I, I'm, I'm sure that you're going to agree on uh, legal grounds. I mean, there is there is no case law that suggests that you can sue the president failing to uphold the particular policies that you you know you'd like to have him have him be but the fact that it has gotten this many groups attaching amicus curie briefs which by the way when you when you're studying this for the you know for listeners that's oftentimes a way to kind of see and understand public opinion um it does have a lot of public opinion backing or what you would think of as being a relatively baseless legal case, which again brings us to the question of, you know, why do we continue to kind of call this genocide? And so what are your thoughts on that front in in light of the, the federal district court case, Ken?
0: Yeah, I, 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 should, I want to just say one more thing about the uh, ICJ case. And I, the, I'm and not I'll done with that either, but, yeah, yeah, so that's yeah, fair. That's yeah, yeah. fair.
1: I was just trying so, to bring them together a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The, the
0: the other thing on forced transfer that I forgot to say, which is just um, extremely uh, uh, ironic about the, this ICJ case, is that Hamas literally has in its platform. You know, and, and Hamas is the governing party in Gaza. It's literally in its platform that um, the Palestinian state should go from the river to the sea, and that all uh, Jews in Israel uh, should be expelled. Right, so it's it, they are literally calling for that unequivocally, whereas this case is actually about you know settling a factual dispute about whether the minority ministers in the Israeli government, um, you know, are are expressing Israeli policy, um, or whether the Israeli policy is actually not forced relocation. It's it's arguable what the Israeli policy is. It's not even arguable what the Hamas policy is. The Hamas policy is absolutely forced relocation or or murder of of every. Reach well, you in okay. Israel, I, I mean,
1: you say I, I agree, and yet at the same time, right now we still have a non-significant portion of the House of Representatives arguing that that statement and that goal is peaceful. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it's not peaceful in the Hamas platform, and and that's why the um, you well, know, it's it's not, I think it's not yeah, peaceful yeah, in any platform. Yeah, any I platform, mean, it, right, it's, yeah you it's, and I agree it, that, it, I, yeah, yeah, yeah but We but about point, I mean, in the previous, yeah,
1: Yes, yeah. and I'm bringing that back here because again, I mean, you say that, and I mean, I, I say that in the yeah. point that I agree, but you know, a minute ago we're kind of talking, but the, I mean, and it's not just a few. It, it's we have a large portion of Democratic House members. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's two of theirs pinned tweets right now. I was looking at it last <laughs> yesterday, which was. You know, quoting Hamas, it blows my mind. I, I,
0: I think there are Americans who use that phrase uh, with a different connotation than Hamas uses it. You know, and I, we talked about this. I on mean, a previous I hear episode. that. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. We didn't go into this last
1: time, but it, is that continues to be pinned there. I was really bothered yesterday by that because I hear that. However, it's a it, it it starts to feel a little bit like the neo Nazi trying to tell me that what he means by his salute, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. is it, different. And at some point, I'm like, listen, maybe that could be true, but it increasingly becomes less likely to me the yeah. longer that, that that gets that's its meaning. And you continue. Does that make yeah, sense? I'm, right?
0: Like, yeah. I, yeah, I start it.
1: to lose. I, you know, I want to give you that uh, benefit of the doubt, but I start to lose the ability to do that at some point.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm not going to argue with you about that. I, I. I think you're basically right about that. I, I. I. think that there's. I would just. You know, maybe say some Americans, um, are are really. Um, you know, mis- misled. You know, not not so much that they themselves are calling for uh, the 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 death or expulsion of all Jews, but that they um, believe that it could be possible to have a, a a Palestinian state in the whole geographic territory of Israel, where there's a a Palestinian government and a Palestinian majority, and and. Jews would still be able to live there and still have civil rights there. But that's definitely not what um, Hamas is calling for. And they're very clear about that. Yeah. And uh, um, and so I I think it is amazing to me that, uh, you know, is Israel, you know, where their, their government officially asserts that their policy is still in favor of a two state solution and still not um, uh, in favor of uh, expelling any Palestinians from Gaza or the West Bank. And, you know, I know there's a factual question about whether they're telling the truth about that or not. But my point was just that um, Hamas doesn't even make any bones about it. The policy that they are saying is genocidal is their policy. Like it's the policy that they openly espouse is to expel or murder uh, every Jew in Israel.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, okay. <laughs> and, and, and again, to bring this back, because this goes in, you know, the argument from the uh, the domestic case says this, this is from their Ken, and, and they're kind of striking straight at your argument. They say, look, uh, under the summary of their argument, characterized as the crime of crimes, genocide is, quote, the denial of the right of existence to entire human groups, a denial which shocks the conscience of mankind and results in great losses to humanity, uh, end quote. which is is quoting an ICJ opinion. Um, Genocide is seeking to, quote, destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as uh, see the Convention on Genocide, Article 2. So, I mean, they're coming straight at your argument and saying, in fact, the ICJ has ruled in such a way uh, that it would include Palestinians. Uh, And again, this is the domestic case we're talking about here. This is the amicus Curie. Uh, In federal district court uh, and therefore arguing uh, that the that to present to not preventing these atrocities is uh, a failure on President Biden.
0: Well, I mean, again, Palestinians as an ethnic or national group, um, you know, Israel is protecting the Palestinians who are in Israel um, against attacks from uh, Hamas. Um, Some of the people that were killed uh, and kidnapped um, on October 7th in Israel were in fact Palestinian people. They weren't all Jewish people, um, and, uh, um, and and so uh, Israel certainly not uh, targeting uh, Palestinians by their ethnicity or their or their race um, for, for anything. But uh, the the other claim, I guess, would be that um, to the extent that there's a, a a war going on now, which Hamas started uh, between um, uh, Gaza, which they claim as as an independent Palestinian state, um, and Israel, which they claim as a, a foreign country, and there and there's a war. Certainly there are some um, uh, international laws of war. That would require um, uh, combatants to try to uh, minimize um, harm to civilians. Um, I would say Israel seems to me to be doing a better job of that than than most combatants in most wars have done. Um, I'm not, I, you know, I'm I'm not sure that when um, that you know the the U.S. was waging the war in Iraq or in Afghanistan um, that we were allowing third-party countries to come in and and give uh, food and medicine aid and clothing aid to the the very people that that we were um, targeting. And Israel has done a lot of That. Um, uh, Israel, I think, has been contacting um, other Arab countries about whether they would uh, step up. Um, their financial support. I think that's primarily in the West Bank now more than in Gaza, but Palestinians in the West Bank have been economically very negatively impacted by the war because 100,000 of them used to work every day in Israel and they can't do that anymore. So the economy in the West Bank is falling apart. And I think the um, in order to help the people who live there, um, the Israeli government has been going to, to Arab states and trying to get them to donate more charitable money into, into the West Bank to benefit the Palestinians who live there. And so I, I think it's been um, you know, every war is going to have a, a, a collateral impact on civilians. Um, and, uh, um, you know, 20,000 civilians or 23 or 4,000, as it might be now, you know, that, that is that is a lot. But I think um, most of the other wars that are taking place around the Arab world and in Africa, um, you know, that Israel's not involved in um, have claimed similar or higher number of civilian casualties, at least as a percentage of the populations affected. So I, I don't really see anything different about this than what you'd see in any other war. Um, I I, I, I also could address your separate question about the jurisdiction of courts, but I didn't know if you wanted to say anything more about about
1: that. Let's talk overall before we get to kind of that that court jurisdiction. And and here's maybe another broad question on this front, because you were setting it up this way. And this is something that I have been thinking about carefully since October. You know, one of the things I think at a fundamental philosophic level that really... Uh, at least in the United States, and I would say more broadly, defines differences between the left and the right, has been the idea of uh, of the appropriateness and the ability to use and wield violence, specifically in terms of uh, war and state conflict. And I and I would say that generally speaking, on you what know, the kind of the the, the historic idea is, is that there can be, you know, better or worse justified or unjustified wars philosophically, morally. But it it seems that in the post-Vietnam era, that especially the left in the United States has increasingly taken the view that all conflict is in and of itself oral and ergo you can't have w- justified war and i was thinking back about this in terms of in in the wake of 911 i remember there was a non significant immediately there was kind of this everybody was on the same page for a little bit but then it wasn't too much longer after that. You had some critiques of the left. Uh, this is, so this is pre going into uh, Iraq of the, well, why, why did we, you know, why did we invade uh, Afghanistan? And, and for all of the conversation you could about about how we build the aftermath of, uh, of Afghanistan. It was hard not to go, that's the question you have? Like, that seemed like a pretty just war conflict to me. And this too seems like one of those. And so I guess one of the questions that I'm kind of here lingering as I look at the number of individuals who are filing against Israel and the circumstances that occurred here, is there a philosophic space left on the left or just war? Because it seems from my point of view, the answer is no, and they're always going to side... Against state backed conflict, which is weird for me as a you know a libertarian leaning guy who's like, "Look, this is really the only place the state ought to have <laughs> right that's what you know, if there's any place, I think they have a role, it's right here."
0: yeah you know I don't look at that on the left right axis the way you are I, I think it has more to do with um, who, who the combatants are and what the, what the issues are I think even right now today in America um, the left is more likely to support uh, providing continued military support to uh, Ukraine um, than the right is and to the extent that there's been a f- falling off in support for that war um, it's because it's from the right it's from the the, the trump wing of the Republican Party um, so I I, I think um, you know in, in if we talk about about September 11th, um, I think there was very broad bipartisan support. And of course, there was a near unanimous vote. I think only one or two no votes in the entire House of Representatives uh, for the authorization uh, for the use of force um, to to retaliate uh, against, um, I guess it was Al-Qaeda, didn't name a particular country. uh, But uh, I think the reason that that started fading, and and I think you're right to think it started fading relatively soon. But I don't think that's because of um, the left getting queasy about uh, the use of military force as much as it was that the left was getting uh, suspicious, uh, that, that the Bush administration was um, really trying to um, expand that mandate. And I think those suspicions were you know borne out. Um, by the Iraq War, which was you know something that again the, the it wasn't that the left was opposed uh, to the use of um, just military force. It was that the left saw no um, justice um, in the idea of going to war against Iraq, which had nothing to do uh, with with September 11th. And and but yet the Bush administration seemed to be trying to conflate the two. So I, I think that's where the 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 erosion of support came from. So and again, even now with Israel, I think you know to the extent that the um, I think you're right to think that the left is less supportive of the Israeli military efforts. But I don't think that's because they're less supportive of military efforts generally. I think it's just because the left, you know, for reasons that I disagree with, are, are more supportive of the Palestinians and less supportive of, of Israel. Um, but I think Ukraine really does provide an immediate present uh, counterexample um, on, on your, your left-right axis there.
1: I hear that. And so, you know, I had thought, you know, I had thought about that a little bit myself. And so I dug just a little bit into uh, uh, some of the data. And when you take a look at voters themselves, and you slice them up by party, and you slice them up by age, what you see is, you know, in, in general, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're right, right? So right now, 48% of uh, Republicans argue that we're giving too much aid to Ukraine. But then when you look over at the Israeli side, though, you know, nearly 70% of Democrats in that same bracket are arguing that we're, we're supporting Israel too much. So there is, in fact, a divide, and you're right, I mean, that's obviously a swap. But the, there is a non-significant, or you might say, in like a stats form. You know, it's a much larger magnitude it appears to be when you're talking about the democratic response to that than in the Repo- so even as the Republicans have waned their support, they're still not down to the level of uh, of uh, disapproval the Democrats have had. For Israel, does that make sense? What I'm trying to like, yeah, yeah, that, no, yeah.
0: I, I, I hear. I mean, I, I could succinctly summarize it by saying you're saying that um, Democrats are more likely to oppose U.S. military involvement um, uh, on behalf a of Israel, level. yeah, 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 than, than Republicans are to oppose it in uh, in, in Ukraine. But, but I, I, again, I just think that's because of how um, Democrats and Republicans respectively feel about the substance of those conflicts, um, you know, more than how they they feel about war Conflict. generally. In fact, I, I think, uh, um you know. A big part of the way that Trump was able to take over the Republican Party and, you know, shove, you know, particularly Je- Jeb Bush aside in, in 2016 when Bush was originally seen as the, you know, the, the major, um, most likely Republican nominee, um, who, although he never got above 5% of the thing. But,
1: yeah. but I mean, when he first Listen, his my, name- my case, it got yeah. better than that. I'm yeah, just yeah, being, yeah, so, yeah. giving some credit. Give me <laughs>
0: But what I was going to try to say is that Trump, you know, was able successfully to tie um, uh, Jeb Bush to George W. Bush, and was able to really, you know, make that that brand um, um, poisonous, but because of the Iraq War, right? Now maybe also because of some other things like Hurricane Katrina. But uh, but now, I think I, right, I, I hear to,
1: that. Like, I don't want to stop you, but I don't. I, I do want to. I have a slightly different take. I think it was more the long-standing, continued presence in Afghanistan rather than the Iraq War, although that is what he was talking about. Because if you think about the demographic of people who was most likely to have their kids or, the, or people they knew in it, it was it was that demographic of people. As a, in other words, I, I think you're making a uh, an intellectual connection there. I think it was connected more to that ongoing, we have people fighting and they don't. Yeah.
0: Well, right, same. It Which is, again, ironic yeah, since it's yeah, It Trump, does, doesn't affect my point that much, because my real point is that when Trump okay, was pushing an anti-war platform, um, that appealed to a lot of Republicans. Okay, okay. Right, right? So that's really what I was saying. So you were sort of, I think, positing that Republicans are hawks and Democrats are doves. And I'm, I'm just not sure that I buy that. I, I think um, it really just depends a lot on what, what the issue is that American military force would be used in favor of. You know, when, when, when President Clinton, um, you know, c- committed U.S. military force uh, in Bosnia, um, uh, and in Somalia, um, most of the support for that came from Democrats. Republicans were pretty uniformly opposed to Somalia and and pretty split on on Bosnia. And I know that's already twenty five years ago, but I I just think we've we've tended to see um, different presidents having different ideas about what would be a just use of military force, and that there's some you know partisan differences about about that. But I, I tend to think most uh, parties, you know, w- w- most most voters um, are. are are willing to support the judgments of their own presidents, um, and and you know for 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 some time, and then and then get and then get um, you know tired of continued conflict if it's not seeming to accomplish anything um, over over a longer period of time. Okay, so more of a traditional war weariness.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe we should pause on that as big as it is, and uh, maybe get into some theater. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not going to do a movie review, or sort of. Uh, instead, I thought maybe we might talk at least a little bit about two competing theaters, of course, uh on Wednesday, the house was uh the the House committee was looking into having their kind of ah i shouldn't say they're looking into it that's giving it too much credit. They were having their publicity stunt of a it 's time to uh, uh, convict or i should say uh find biden uh, hunter Biden in co- uh, uh, contempt of congress and you know, again, we had talked about this before, Ken, and we came down a little bit different places, right? I I thought they ought to do this. I thought they could have done it better, but okay, you know, it's it's the house. It's 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 all about media anymore. I get that. But what became a little bit of an even more over the top is is that uh, Hunter Biden, who is now facing three felonies and six misdemeanors for his 1.4 million in federal income tax uh, on Thursday, decided to uh, just drop by. <laughs> <laughs> on Wednesday, the Oversight Committee hearing on his contempt charge. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when noticing he'd entered, Representative Nancy Mace asked, "Quote: Who bribed Hunter Biden to be here today?" <laughs> Which, I have to be honest, I mean, she's got kind of a terrible. But that was a great buy. Like that was that was I mean, I mean, that, that was a great uh, shot. Uh, but this then led to this kind of really unruly confrontation between Mace and Democrats with de- uh, Democrats. I think. Rightfully also trying to get a, a jab in, saying, like, let's, let's just hear from him right now. Like, here he is. Uh, meanwhile, others calling him a coward. So, I mean, it was a really great made-for-TV moment, which is, I, I suppose, what a lot. Uh, of what the House does in general is. I mean, I'm I'm a a scholar. That's what we've already come to that point of view, although it is always funny when it becomes quite that big. Uh, And it was also probably kind of a a high-risk strategy, I think, for Hunter Hunter Biden because he knew the following day, i.e. on Thursday, that he would be heading over and pleading not guilty in Los Angeles uh, to those three felonies and those six misdemeanors um, and as we've already talked about, uh, accused of uh, stiffing the government uh, in the years 2016 through 2019 and spending the money in the words of the uh, uh, of the document, quote, on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, rental properties, exotic cars, clothing and other items of personal nature. In short, everything but his taxes, <laughs> in quote. <laughs> According to the indictment, <laughs> which I, I had to include that lie because that like, you don't oftentimes get funny indictment lines. But I liked that one. Um, so I, I again, I feel bad. I'm going to be honest. I, I feel like this is the I feel bad for President Biden week. <laughs> you know, again, I felt bad for him over the Lloyd thing. I feel bad for him in this. I get what Hunter Biden is trying to do. He is trying to win in the media space. He, is try, he, w- he was trying yesterday to have a great bit of a media bump. He wanted a sound bite. He wanted a cool TikTok video. He wanted that moment. And I know it sounds, I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I, mean, I just mean that in an empirical way. I'm not trying to say, I'm not throwing anything at him negatively necessarily. That just is what it is. And I get that. Um, But I also see this as being kind of a high risk strategy because I don't know what either he or President Biden gains from these moments. Um, But I think that President Biden has a lot to lose from these moments. I, 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 I see no win and I see a lot of loss. Uh. But I do see a lot of potential win for Republicans, right? I mean, it give, it give it gives Representative Mace a great time to make him look like a spoiled jerk in a way that he wouldn't have gotten. But I get I get what he was going for, and I, I get that that could have been the way it came off. But instead, you just get this big bunch of spectacle, in my opinion, and it also comes off weird since you know the next day is when he's going to be pleading not guilty. And so once again, he's bouncing from one coast to the other coast. For seemingly the spectacle of it. So, what do you think about this in this case? Again, I, I, I just keep feeling bad for President Biden.
0: <laughs> no, I, th- I actually don't agree with that. I think there was a political benefit uh, both to Hunter Biden and to uh, um, Joe Biden um, in Hunter showing up because, um, you know, Hunter um, is probably going to be voted in contempt of Congress. Right. Oh, and, he is. And so, yeah, he, sure. yeah. Yeah. And so I think there needs to be a counter narrative about, you know, what, what, what that was all about. Right. And if 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 he was subpoenaed and he just wouldn't show up um then that's that's you know, contempt of Congress. And so I, I don't think there's it's easy to have a counter narrative there. Whereas, um, you know, by showing up and, and making kind of the strong move, I'm, I'm right here. I'm ready to testify. Um, the only thing I don't want to do is testify behind closed doors and uh, um, have, have have people mischaracterize what I say. So I want all this to be right out in public so people can see that I've, I've got nothing to hide. And this is a kangaroo proceeding. You know, I, I think it allows him to establish that narrative as an explanation of what the contempt vote was all about, that the, the contempt vote is just, you know, illegitimate, politically illegitimate because he was perfectly willing to testify and I think that's a better narrative for him than than, you know, just slinking away, which would have been the alternative, I guess. Here's the problem though. It is almost
1: certain that he is going to be found guilty on some, if not many, of these charges. And so what that then becomes is if you know that going in, which I think given that he was willing to make a plea deal means he does earlier, and then that fell apart. What that means is, is that that moment, especially if it comes before the presidential election, plays into the narrative. It, do- it doesn't make the narrative that you're suggesting anymore, and it makes the narrative of the guilty guy who is making a power play.
0: Now, I don't I don't think there's a such a I mean, that may like look like that to Republicans who already aren't going to vote for Joe Biden. But um, no, you know, I think I th- I, what
1: I'm saying is you, I think that that's what it looks like to those voters who are going to determine this election in states like Pennsylvania.
0: Well, but the what the uh, Republican House wanted to um, presumably wanted to ask Hunter Biden about um, is Joe Biden's connection to any of this conduct. Um, Joe Biden doesn't have a connection to any of this conduct, and so you know. No, I get, get, yeah, I get that. Yeah. I,
1: I'm I'm not trying. I'm honestly, I'm I'm here. I'm not trying to suggest that the the, the, the narrative there you're straighting is not true. What I'm suggesting is is if you know in advance as a media strategy that you're going to lose on some of these counts. And if you think you're going to lose on those counts before the election, that making that bid isn't going to, even if that is what that, even if we can peer in everybody's mind and recognize all it's about is just complete kangaroo-ness, and I grant that, I still think that that makes terrible campaign ads moving forward if you know and I think you probably do if you're willing to take the pleading deal that you're going to lose on some of these counts that. So my point wasn't that, hey, that narrative couldn't work. But in the long run for the presidential election, it doesn't work if he loses on some of those counts. That's I guess that's what I'm trying yeah. to get at.
0: Yeah, I think what you're missing is um, the the I don't know whether he's going to win or lose. I think the, the criminal cases could go either way. But let's assume he loses and, and gets convicted on some of those counts, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, that the, the fact that those cases are going to happen in criminal courts and, and not in the House of Representatives absolutely assures that Joe Biden is not going to be tarnished in any way because Joe Biden had nothing to do with anything that happened. So it, so if Hunter Biden gets convicted of, um, you know, he he kept a gun while he was addicted to drugs and, and that's illegal and he gets convicted of that. Um, there, there's no there's no way to cast any doubt on uh, Joe Joe Biden's fitness to be president based on something his son did that had absolutely nothing to do with with Joe Biden. And so, I mean, I you've I looked you, at American elections before, right? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, mean yeah, I hear yeah. you, but I mean, so again, I mean, you're arguing that like a lawyer
1: and more uh, Jimmy Jim, right? Jimmy
0: Carter had Billy Carter. Uh, Bill Clinton had uh Clinton. Nixon had a nerdy well brother. Uh, careful, uh, yeah. careful on Carter. I
1: mean, he only served
0: one term. <laughs> That's true. But he got elected. Billy Carter was a, an issue even in the 76 election. And uh, I, I think there's Billy Beater. You know, yeah. Um, uh, even uh, what George W. Bush got reelected. And one one of his daughters was apparently like uh, had alcohol problems while she was still in college. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think that that's just kind of normal stuff. And the, the Republicans are trying to blow it up. But what they're really trying to do is link it to Joe Biden. And, and nothing in the criminal cases that's not even going to come up in the criminal case. There's nothing that could relate to Joe Biden that would even be relevant enough to be admitted into a criminal case. So so I I think that's really different than what a House of Representatives um, uh, uh, proceeding would have looked like. If Joe Biden, excuse me, if If Hunter Biden
1: had been having his obvious struggles and issues in the way that Jenna had been, um, but had not been on the boards of companies and been making money through companies, I don't even think Republicans would be would be attempting to have to to, uh, have the narrative they have today. I think what makes Hunter Biden unique from now, probably not Billy, because Billy did try to cash in on it. but man, he's just—I I don't even know if we can compare. Them. But I, I, I think Jenna's is a better example. You know, uh, uh, Jenna Bush was at no point also seemingly uh, attempting to uh, make millions of dollars
0: well, <laughs> while Trump, she's in. Uh... But the Trump the Trump children all did, and and in fact, Jared Kushner made uh, billions, not millions, of dollars off of uh, his his uh, father in law's presidency. So, um, you know, I I, I just but don't a, see. I yet.
1: didn't disagree with. I mean, I yeah. didn't. I don't agree that he didn't do that. Uh, and I think the Democrats pointed that out frequently and often.
0: Yeah. um yeah. So, so I, I you know, I, I mean, we'll see how this plays out politically. But I, I think the most important political, um, you know, uh, uh, benefit of the theater that we saw yesterday for Hunter Biden actually showing up is that I, I really think the kinds of issues that you're talking about will not be of uh, concern to Democratic voters. Um, and, you know, whereas it might have been of more concern to Democratic voters if it really looked like Hunter Biden was just running away and hiding.
1: Okay, well, we'll want to continue to take a look at that as the uh, presidential season moves forward, and see if we can try to figure out the winners or losers. Although you've got a good track record, Ken, so I should be careful of going up against you on this one. But (laughs) (laughs) okay, so I think we need to get in one more story because if we're going to have, I mean, you can't you can't talk about kangaroo weird moments in courts and or uh, house members if we don't talk about well. Thursday and the Trump case, right? You got to do this. <laughs> so earlier this week, Ken Trump had asked Beak own closing arguments, and it is it is hard to overstate how weird that is. And I'm going to let you explain that a little bit more to listeners in a minute. I'll just say it's really weird. <laughs> um, Trump lawyer Chris uh, Kiss had requested permission from the uh, 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 from the judge for Trump to participate in the case closing arguments. Uh, Ngong said he would allow Trump to speak only if the former president agreed to abide by a long list of conditions, including and importantly limiting his remarks to the issues in the case and refraining from giving, quote, a campaign speech, end quote. After Kiss failed to accept the conditions, uh, the judge wrote in an email on Wednesday that he assumed Trump wouldn't be speaking during the presentations. But on Thursday, Trump did end up getting the last word in. Uh, after Kiss had, uh, and his lawyers had finished in presenting their closing arguments, Kiss said Trump that wanted to participate. Aragon asked Trump on the spot, which is already bizarre, to agree to limit his remarks to the evidence and the law, saying, quote, do you promise to just comment on the law and the facts and not go outside of it, End quote. Trump neither agreed nor disagreed, but began by retorting, quote, well, I think this case goes outside of the law and facts, End quote. He went on into what you might call his typical criticisms uh, of the campaign trail, calling it, quote, a political witch hunt, end quote, uh, and going on to rile against the judge itself. Uh, Trump would say, when you say, don't go out of these things, we have a situation where I'm an innocent man. I've been persecuted by someone running for office. And he's referring, of course, uh, to James. This is a fraud on me, Trump would go on to say. What's happened here, sir, is a fraud on me. Finally, the judge warned Trump that he was running up against the deadline for a planned break. Trump then turned his decision on the judge himself and criticized him, saying quote, you have your own agenda. I certainly understand that. You can't listen for more than one minute, end quote. At this finally, the judge says, Mrs. Kiss, please please control your client, Uh, and they ended the break. Now, what for me, is I'm curious to get your your take on this. Um, again, I have not spent nearly as much time in courtrooms as you have, but I, you know, I have spent time in courtrooms. I've watched a lot. Never have I heard, seen any kind of instance like this, where then the defendant just went on with the rest of their day. <laughs> And this leads me, I've been thinking about this, Ken, you know, this is kind of the larger and we don't, we can't, we're not going to deal with the 14th amendment because uh, uh, Mike and Jay have already done that. But I think this leads to this larger question. No other would would have, I think, been able to interact this way and to have this kind of moment and not have a moment where the the judge gaveled him out uh, or potentially uh, uh, put him in, in, in jail temporarily. But if he did those things, I don't think he can do those things either and this brings us to one of the different predictions that we've had, and that is thought that Trump really could face jail time, and I had said, I don't think that's a possibility in the system as it exists today, and the more I've thought about it and the more I've looked at this particular- i mean again I recognize it's kind of a kangaroo moment. I think this is evidence in my favor because I don't think the judge could have operated any differently even if That is what he would have done in every other circumstance, which means I just don't see in the long run how, as Trump runs, he is found guilty of anything. So what do you think about this crazy moment and or that theory?
0: (laughs) No, I I think, um, you know, this... (laughs) I, I agree. This is a data point in favor of your argument, but I think it's a small data point in favor of your argument, not a, not a big one. Because uh, this is a civil trial and this is a bench trial, um, and and also we're at the end of it, right? So um, so the, for all those reasons, I, I certainly agree with you that it was extremely unlikely and you know didn't didn't happen. You know that, that this judge would send Trump to jail, but you know this is a a civil case. It's it's quite unusual to send. Someone to jail for contempt during a civil case when they, you know, there's no jail possibly emanating, you know, even if they lose the civil case, um, uh, and also, you know, that Trump's antics uh, because there's no jury. Um, it doesn't taint, it doesn't really taint the proceedings. It, the judge is perfectly capable of ignoring and disregarding everything. Um, and it happened right at the end. So, you know, I think when the, when the judge decided to let uh, Trump speak for five minutes, um, you know, the judge just probably figured, you know, I'll just like bear this for, I'll, I'll bear it for five minutes and then he'll, you know, and then we'll be done. And so I, I think that it would have been a, a disproportionate to send uh, Trump to, 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 to jail for contempt under those circumstances. Um, no, you know, more or less, no matter what he said. So certainly, this this is a a situation where you know I think you know there wasn't really any chance he was going to go to jail, and that's consistent with your theory that he's not going to go to jail. <laughs> but I think there's other kinds of situations that you know there could you know not all those factors might um, obtain.
1: Now, and, and I, I, I want to you to be, finish that yeah, thought, yeah, but yeah. just in general, because again, this is one you know I recognize it. What do you think the likelihood had somebody else been sitting in the chair? that there would have been a different kind of repercussion. Am I right? Well, in at least so, no, no, I recognize yeah. in a civil case, that's unusual. Yeah. But do yeah. you think the judge, at the minimum, don't you think a judge would have, I'm asking an honest question, yeah. gaveled him out and been like, okay, you're shutting up now.
0: Well, I, I, I actually don't even think it's possible to hypothesize anyone else in that chair because okay. the, the the lawyers wouldn't have um, even made that request on behalf of a different client. <laughs> that, OK, that's right. fair. That's it, it's, fair. It's, it's, it's such an improper request and it, it's such a um, detrimental request to the legal interest of the client. And it was detrimental to Trump's legal interest. And, you know, you said he's not going to get convicted in any of these cases. Well, this is only a civil case, so the, the word conviction doesn't apply. True. But it's a, it's a certainty that he's going to lose and he's going to get a huge judgment judgment against him you know and i think the 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 uh, attorney general uh, james Amended her her complaint. She originally asked for a two hundred fifty million dollar judgment. She raised it to a three hundred seventy million dollar judgment. And I'd be shocked if she gets any less than the two hundred fifty million she originally asked for. I, I, she may not get the whole amended amount, but I, you know, that that's you know, and that does relate to the way uh, Trump himself decided to conduct the trial because it, you know, I think he went into it, you know, deciding that um he's already going to lose the case. There's no reason to try to mitigate the damages. His political Political interest is best served by um, just trying to make a circus of the whole thing and and and, and make it into a, a bunch of partisan theatrics. And he he really you know dedicated his efforts to doing that. But you're you're not going to see a normal litigant doing that. A normal litigant is going to listen to their lawyer a little bit more about you know how do you make this case uh, come out in the least bad way for you possible. Right. But I, <laughs> it, but I think that that just wasn't um, you know on on that wasn't Trump's priority. So I I, I I I think it was it would normally be seen as malpractice for a lawyer to even make the request that, that Christopher Kyes made three or four times um, that, that Judge Engram uh, and, and let uh, Trump address him. Um, but yeah, a, a, a client who is represented by a competent counsel um, does not um, get to participate pro se uh, in, in a legal closing argument. Um, counsel makes the legal closing argument. There is often um, a, a time in a criminal trial. Um, at sentencing, where the um, defendant, after having been convicted... Pilling phase, right? Yeah, in the penalty phase, they, they can address the court. And usually they'll do that to try to apologize or say something mitigating, you know, so that they won't get um, sentenced as much. They won't usually, uh, I've never heard of anyone <laughs> using that to try to provoke the court and, and, and say that it's a, it's a biased proceeding, uh, because that, that can't really help in terms of the goal of, of, of mitigating. But then, you know, other than the the, the, the op- opportunity that litigants might get um, at a penalty phase to address the court and, and just try to say something by way of explanation or apology. When when you get to actual uh, legal closing arguments, you know, if, if it's a pro se case, then the the litigant has to make the closing argument themselves. But in in the normal case where it's where the the litigant is in fact represented by competent counsel, it's counsel's job to make the argument, and counsel has to operate within the rules of professional responsibility and legal ethics, and under the possible threat of uh, bar suspension or disbarment if they violate those rules. Um, uh, you know, someone who's who's not a lawyer, um, you know, isn't constrained by by bar discipline. Uh, you know, Trump can't be dis- barred because he's not in the bar. Um, but that would be the, that would be the more usual kind of remedy. Um, if a, if a lawyer, uh, uh, if a lawyer was making the closing argument and a lawyer pulled such a, um, um, um com- completely improper, um, stunt like that, uh, to, to try to, you know, kind of, uh, make a campaign speech from the, from, in the, in, in the platform for a legal closing argument. So I, I think judge Angeron basically did the right thing in terms of, you know, giving Trump his five minutes. And, you know, once he decided to let him talk, You know, I think he pretty much had to plan to just close his ears and try to, you know, duck. But uh, but I you know, I I don't I don't really see why he let him make the argument at all. But maybe he just decided that he'd rather, you know, make more rulings in Trump's favor so that there'd be less things for Trump to appeal on later. Yeah, fair. Well, I guess we probably should stop it there. But I'll just say, can
1: my my prediction and you can kind of add that in if you want. I think I I think uh, I think James gets the full amount of money, but I think on some bizarre thing we can't even think of now uh, he gets it gets overturned on appeal
0: Where, by the by the new york court of appeals yes oh that won't happen that won't happen okay yeah, okay we'll see <laughs> well, I, no, no, I love it yeah. it might get reduced if, if 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 it's a very high amount of money it might get reduced, reduced? but uh, but it won't it will still be you know reduced to a, a a smaller very high amount of money i think
1: okay i'm curious to see well, that's it for this week's show. If you're not already a supporter of the politics, guys, I hope you'll be considered becoming one. Without supporters, that's, well, it would be the end of the show. And so you can become a supporter right now and make this show happen. But it's not just making the show happen, as fun as that is. It is all getting kinds of well, good stuff, including versions, of everything we put out. Uh, so, for example, you get tired of listening to ads. I do. That's why we get the Disney Plus version, right? <laughs> so... If you want to get that, in addition to our expo- exp- supporter exclusive midweek show, that's one of my favorite things. Matter of fact, that's what Ken and I are going to be doing in just a minute. We're going to be releasing our midweek show. We've been going through the Constitution. You'll get our upcoming Constitution on the First Amendment and petition and assembly, but everything we've done thereafter. So it's a chance to kind of break away from the normal deal, but that's only available to supporters. And if you want that plus so much others, it is time to become a member of the politics. So head to patreon.com slash politicsguys and take a look at the different levels of support, pick a level of support, and start getting that midweek show, start getting the ad-free versions of the show, and so much more. If you'd like to support us somewhere else besides patreon.com slash politicsguys, we're also on Venmo, where we're at politicsguys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those are available in the show links. Just scroll down right there on your phone, or if you're on a computer, head to politicsguys.com support. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, or review us on the podcast app of your choice. And again, sharing these episodes or snippets of them to social media is always something we adore. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or anything else you'd like to share with the Politics Guys, Just reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X, and you'll find all of those links, you've guessed it, in the show notes. As always, a special thanks to the executive producers of The Politics Guys, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and I hope you'll join us then.